My name is uh, Pete, and I'm uh, the lead pastor of our church. Uh, who's in exam season? Who's like got exams coming up or tests coming up? Just hands up. Come on, don't be shy. I know a lot of you have. Yeah, there's more than that. Stick it right up. How are you going to get HDs if you don't know how to put up your hand? All right, okay. There's a few of you. Um, so I've got a bit of a pop quiz for you. Have a look at these questions. Talk to the person next to you. See if you can answer them in under the next 10 seconds. Nine, eight, seven. Six, five, four, three, two, one. All right, time's up. How do we go? Do we get answers to all of them? I won't ask you for it. Um, these questions were the t- uh, asked to a bunch of kids all under the age of 10, and you want to see their answers? Name the four seasons. Salt, pepper, mustard, and vinegar. Name a major disease associated with smoking, premature death. How can you delay milk turning sour? Keep it in the cow. And what is a terminal illness when you get sick at the airport? Now, now have a think about those answers. They're actually right, aren't they? In a, in a, in a sort of kid-like way. I mean, is there anything particularly not right about their answers? Um, it's something wonderful, I think, when you, there's websites devoted to, you know, what kids said and the funny things kids say. But um, for kids... The world really isn't that complicated, is it? It's very simple. They see it, and then they say it, or they say it how they see it. And it's actually when you become adults, and the older you get, that the more complicated things become. And that's a little bit like life, isn't it? The older you get, I don't know if you've ever felt like that, you've just moved from some things that are very simple um, in life, in, in living, in, in the way you see the world, and then for some reason it just gets all complex. And it's like that burden on your back gets heavier and heavier, and, and it's, it's things like stress and, and exams and relationships and mortgages and, and so many things that used to be so simple just get so complicated. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at kids. You know, one of the most wonderful sounds you ever hear are, are little kids giggling. Isn't it the most wonderful sound? They're just playing. They're just free. They just do stuff. And, you know, and it's just so wonderful to see. And sometimes don't you look at them and you think, boy, I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back to that kind of simplicity. Because they're happier. Well, you know, when it comes to Jesus, that's not only a desirable thing. It's actually necessary. You got that? You actually have to become like a child. Jesus himself says, if you want to be part of his world, heaven, the world where he is ruling as king, you've actually got to be like a child. You've got to be born again, is his words. You've got to start all over again. And this for, it's not an optional extra. It's not like, oh, some of you need to be like that and others of you just get away with being... No, no. Everyone who wants to come to Jesus has to come to Jesus like a child. That's the nature of true faith. The kind of faith that sees heaven, Jesus says, is a childlike faith, a simple faith. Now, those of you who've been followers of Jesus for a long time, you'll know that, right? But as you take a look at your own life and your own faith and your own walk with God... I think you'd agree that, like life in general, there's just been so much that's cluttered it, hasn't it? So much that's unnecessarily complicated our faith. 
It's almost like the longer you've been a Christian, the more that gets to be the case. Anytime God calls you to just trust Him and do something or trust Him and go, you see yourself, you hear yourself come up with a string of buts. But, but what about this? But what about that? But what about... You know that scene in Aladdin? Okay, seen Aladdin, whether the animated or the new one. And uh, Aladdin's you know, rocked up with a flying carpet and Jasmine's like, whoa, what is this? And Aladdin says, come and ride with me, you know, I will show you the world, shiny, shimmering, splendid, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and she doesn't know, and he goes, do you trust me? You know that scene? And she just has to trust him, and she does. Sometimes I wonder, if I was in Jasmine's shoes, I'd probably come up with all these excuses of not, why not trust him? Like, is this even safe? Have you checked with OHNS? Um, uh, do I need to bring a hairbrush? Because I... I'm suspecting my hair's going to get out of line and messy. Um, or I've had bad experiences riding on camels. I'm not sure if I should go on. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think life can be like that for us. God says, come with me. Trust me. I want to take you somewhere. And we're just like, but, 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 but. When did it get so complicated? Yeah? And what's really, really terrible about it is we're, we're, we're in danger of losing what is most precious to God, which is a simple, dependent, childlike faith. And the reason why I open with this is because that's what we see in John chapter 9. We see a dependent, childlike faith of a man born blind, but who walks away at the end of the chapter seeing. And we need to learn from him. So let's pray and let's get into it. Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit to show us what the nature of faith really is. So those of us who've lost sight of that might regain it. And those of us who don't yet have it might today know it. In Jesus' name, amen. Got a few points if you want to follow on the outlines of the bulletins you got when you came in. Um, let's start with this healing. Uh, this is a world, as you know, uh, with no NDIS, okay? No disability um, insurance scheme, no social structures that provided for the poor, the disabled, so a person like this blind man from birth had very little hope. Now, the passage here doesn't actually say, but it's no doubt that this guy, the only way he could survive was being a beggar. So I wonder if you've been to places where you've seen people like him. Sometimes you'll see it in our own city, but not that much. If you go to a place like India, right, they're everywhere, right? Disabled people begging. Now, we won't read it again, the healing you've read before. Jesus heals the man miraculously. But we're going to try and extract what the main idea is. Right, what's the main idea of what's going on? What's this healing about? Well, you'll need to know that the healing is not just a healing. That's the key. This healing is not just a healing. Because the context of this passage and the way that Jesus heals shows that Jesus is offering more than just physical healing. Now, you get that in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. Keep your Bibles open. We will have to look at the rest of the chapter that we didn't read. But look at verse 4. Jesus says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, Jesus is saying something important here. And it actually links us back to a chapter earlier. Don't turn to it. But you remember John chapter 8, Jesus is at the feast, the festival, this Jewish festival. And in John chapter 8, we didn't look at it last week, uh, two weeks ago, sorry, but Jesus said these famous words, you might have heard it before, on the screen, Jesus said a chapter ago, 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, so you get it? Chapter 8, chapter 9, there's this theme of light and dark. And so associated with that, the theme of seeing or sight and blindness. Jesus comes as the light of the world to bring sight to the blind man. But because he's the light of the world, the symbol of light in darkness is not just about bringing sight to the blind man, is it? Not just physical healing. There's much more to this healing than that. It's a symbol. Because Jesus is the light coming into the dark world. He's to give sight not just to physically blind people, but spiritually blind people. Now, even get a clue towards that in the way that Jesus heals. So we read earlier, how did Jesus heal him? Well, he spat on the ground, made some goo from the mud on the ground with his spit, puts it on the guy's eyes. And you'd be thinking like I did, that is pretty gross, yeah? Right? Spit and mud on eyes. Now, there's a symbol that this ties to, and this is why Jesus does it. One of the reasons why Jesus does it. Back in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, in the Garden of Eden, God forms Adam... The first man using what? Using mud or clay from the ground. And so you've got also this clay image from Genesis 2. But then back in Genesis 1, how did God create the world? God said, let there be what? Let there be light. Okay, Genesis 1, light. Genesis 2, mud or clay. We've got really strong ties to what? The creation, don't we? The first creation. And the healing is actually pointing to a new creation, which actually is the passage we read from Isaiah 65 in our first Bible reading. Jesus, even in the act of healing, is pointing to something. And in fact, every time Jesus physically heals someone, it's a pointer to a greater healing, a healing of all broken people in a broken creation. There's a day coming when he will make everything and everyone new. I'm going to show you Isaiah chapter 35, uh, which happens to be in the same book from Isaiah uh, that we read earlier, but 20 chapters or so earlier, 30 chapters earlier. Look at what it says there on the screen. God is promising the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. See, Jesus is the light of the world, coming to do God's work, as he said in verse 4 and 5. And God's work is this, to bring light to a dark, broken world. To make everything new, not just individual eyes. To heal and to save whole of creation. And you need to know that this is still what Jesus is here to do today. In our lives today, He has come to offer you healing. Do you feel broken? Do you need forgiveness? Are you feeling desperate and needy? Because He's come to bring you all of those things. He's here to give sight to the blind and life to the dead. And he's still offering that to you today, no matter where you've come from, no matter how much Christian background you have or haven't got. He's come to offer you that today. And in order to make it possible, Jesus, the light of the world, himself will face 
darkness, only chapters later in the Gospel of John, He will take our sin and face the darkness of hell and the judgment of God in our place. And the light of the world will have His light snuffed out as He dies on the cross. And He will spend three days in a dark, dark tomb. By the way, that's the night talked about in verse 4 when Jesus says the night is coming when no one can work. That's the night between His death and His resurrection. Three days in the tomb, He faces night in our place. But then He rises again, conquers death, and offers eternal life because now it is no longer night, now that He's risen again. That's how it comes about. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, no matter what you've done, Jesus is offering you the same today. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have relationship and eternal life. Today, you can begin tasting what the new creation will be. You can have that now. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know that Jesus is not just offering you a pie in the sky when you die. Not just salvation when you die. Jesus wants to get deep into your life. And He wants to mend what's broken. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then following Him means that He mends that. He wants to do that bit by bit as you follow Him on the road to heaven. I don't know if you've seen this before. In Japan, they have this art, it's called kintsugi, kintsugi, where they take broken pottery and rather than chuck it out or just kind of glue it together normally, they, they mend it with gold. Isn't it beautiful? And it creates this beautiful pattern, these broken things that are mended and look even more spectacular having been mended. Well, friends, God wants to do that in your life. Did you know that? You might be coming here today feeling, I'm too broken. Right? I've been hurt so much by myself, my own actions, or I've been hurt by the actions of others. Or maybe even you're a follower of Jesus and you feel like, I've gone too far away from Jesus to, to deserve Him loving me. I'm, I'm so broken. What, what, what does God want to do? God wants to mend you up. And He wants the mending to result in something so beautiful. Even more beautiful. See, Jesus is coming to do that, offering that, this healing work in all of our lives. But you see, the healing story in John chapter 9 is really just a part of a greater chapter, a bigger set of events. And really, the rest of the talk today, I want to show you that there are right responses and wrong responses. There are ways you're going to reject what Jesus comes to bring, and in one way that you can receive it. So there's three wrong responses and one right response. Let's go to the wrong responses. Point number two, how people might reject it. So let's go. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Let's start from the beginning again and see the first group of people that respond wrongly, the disciples. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now you got that? This, this whole healing comes about because of a question Jesus' disciples ask him. But what kind of a question is it? It's not, Jesus, how can we help this poor man? Jesus, do you see him? Can you help him? Because we, no, no, no. Their first question is, whose fault was it? That's pretty alarming. That's pretty heartless, isn't it? There's no compassion. There's no action. Just judgment and criticism. Now, it's not just the disciples who are like this. They actually reflect a wider view 
of the Jews of Jesus' day. In fact, we'll see that later on. The Pharisees will have the same view. But it's not just the Jewish religion, is it? Like in, in modern terms, well, sorry, it's not modern terms, but in terms you might be familiar with, this is the view of karma. You've heard of karma, right? You do something good, something good will happen to you. Do something bad, something bad will happen to you. It actually is central in Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. Well, the whole thing behind karma and the disciples is what? Works. Works. Right? Works or merit, good works, being good, right? So, or being bad. If you're bad, you get punished. That's karma. If you're good, you get saved. That's karma. So this man that they see is born blind because he must be guilty. If not him, then his parents are guilty. And by implication, they're saying what? Well, we're not blind. Therefore, what? We're better than him. Yeah, that's always the karmic view, isn't it? But you see, this is not Jesus' view. Verse 3, Jesus says, no, it's not anyone's fault. Rather than assign blame or judge, he goes right ahead and heals the man. So here it is, friends. This is the first way you might reject the work of Jesus in your life. It is entirely possible to miss out on the beautiful work that Jesus wants to do in your life because like his disciples, you don't understand grace. Because the opposite of karma is grace. The opposite of works is grace. See, the works mentality says God loves and accepts me more if I am good and he will reject me if I am bad. And by the way, that's pretty much the nature of every religion except Christianity. God will love me more if I'm good, reject me if I'm bad. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, maybe you don't want Jesus' offer to save because you now have to admit that you are a sinner. And that you can't help yourself and save yourself. And you can never be good enough for God. Because that's really at the heart of receiving grace. You've got to first come needing it. Saying, I, I've got nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Right? Only to the cross I cling, says one of the songs we sing. And for some people, I don't want Christianity because I've got to admit that I need God. I'm a pretty good person. Or maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus because you don't think you're worthy to become a Christian yet. I meet a lot of people, including some people who come through fresh and go to discover Jesus. And really, there's nothing intellectually that's stopping you from becoming a Christian. But maybe because of some sort of religious background and upbringing, the, the, what I'm often hearing is, I, I can't become a Christian yet until I get my life fixed. Have you heard that? Is that how you feel? Until I feel like I, I do more of this church stuff or, or, or just try and turn my life around a bit, then maybe I'm worthy to become a Christian. Until I'm ready, I don't want to... Well, that doesn't understand grace either. Because grace means Jesus has done it all. You don't need to contribute anything except your sin to be saved. Jesus is not waiting for you to become better before you cross over the line. In fact... He's made it possible so that as you are broken and everything, right now you can give your life to Jesus. So I wonder if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, whether that's what's stopping you. You're really still thinking through a framework of, of, of works. I've got to be good enough. I've got to earn my way. Now, for followers of Jesus, for Christians here, I think what often happens to us is we understand that we are saved by grace, okay? God's generosity, not by works. But what often happens is you, you think you're saved by grace, but now you've got to continue on by works, yeah? 
You're saved by grace. But whether or not God, you're in God's good books day by day as a Christian is based entirely pretty much on how you perform. So the, the mornings where you start off the day well, you've read your Bible, you've prayed, haven't done any major sins, you kind of feel like, yeah, things are supposed to go well today. Right? The days you kind of, you know, maybe had a bad day or bad week, you, f- you feel like, I, I don't even feel like I'm worthy to pray because I haven't paid God any attention and, and, and maybe something bad's going to happen to me today. Like, Christian, you know it, right? You've, you, you've thought that I have in the past. That's trying to live by works. And one clear sign that you've gone that direction, like the disciples, the clearest sign, I'll tell you, is what? Is judgmentalism. Yeah, Christians can be a really judgmental bunch. And judgmentalism is almost always a symptom of someone who is trying to live by works. Is that you? Are you the person that's always critical? Always looking at others and picking fault in them? Do you find yourself having a lack of compassion or tenderness or kindness? You always assume the worst in someone, not the best. And the reason you do that is because in your heart of hearts, you think you're better. Isn't it? That's where judgmentalism comes from. You, you, you're always thinking, I'm not quite as bad as the person I'm judging. Hypercriticism comes from that place. I think I'm better. Which means you're living by what? You're living by works, like the disciples. Because works breeds pride and breeds judgmentalism. Is this you? Now, here's the thing. If this is you, whether you are a Christian or not, let me tell you now, there is so much beautiful healing work that God wants to do in your life that you are right now missing out on. Because nothing hardens your heart to God's grace in your life more than pride. Nothing. Jesus is able to break through brokenness. No matter what you've done, you might have thought, I've done the worst thing possible. You know what? Jesus can break through that. But I'll tell you what grace does not break through. Grace does not break through proud hearts because it's the complete opposite of that. Is that you? Because you're missing out on something beautiful. So that's the first. The disciples, you can reject Jesus because of works. What about the parents? Well, after the healing, we didn't read this earlier, there's actually six scenes in the rest of the chapter. We won't look at all of them, but I will show you how the chapter is laid out. And each scene, is, as you can see, is, is, is kind of a Q&A um, or a series of, of investigations, all right, that the Pharisees now start on this healing. What we're going to do is look at scene four for now, all right, scene four, which is the Pharisees are going to interview the parents. So um, have your Bibles open. We're going to read from verse 18, verse 18. They, the Pharisees, still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know that he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because... They were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. 
That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. It's possible to be like the blind man's parents. It's possible to miss out on what Jesus offers because of this thing called fear. Fear of what other people might think. Fear of losing people's approval. Fear of the cost if you confess and follow Jesus. Now you probably know that our world is getting more and more, well, Australia is getting more and more hostile to Christianity. And some will not become Christians because, not because they don't believe it's true, but just because they fear the cost. It will cost. People's approval. You'll sacrifice things to follow Jesus. Others, though, will have been Christian but will abandon their faith because it's just so hard to keep swimming against the tide for so long and not be cool in the eyes of the culture and not be accepted, in fact, to be called bigot and intolerant and hate speech type people. So you'll know of high-profile Christians who have recently decided to abandon the faith. Joshua Harris, Marty Sampson. Now, it's such a tragedy, isn't it? And we're not here to judge people like that. But it is a tragedy. It's a tragedy in this story because the parents of the blind man were afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue, afraid of being marginalized by their religion. But think about it. The one that their synagogues point to, the one that is the fulfillment of their religion is here. (laughs) Can you, like, that just doesn't make sense, right? They're afraid of being chucked out of the synagogue, but their whole synagogue system, whole religion was all about the Messiah, was all about Jesus. And by choosing the people's approval, the leader's approval, they miss out on what it's all about. Someone greater. And so I want to ask you the question, wherever you are right now, where in your life is fear holding you back from God's work in your life or derailing God's work in your life? You're afraid to stand up for Jesus at school or uni or work. Really be counted. I am a follower of Jesus. This really matters to me. Even if you should stop liking me and I lose friends, I will stand up for Jesus. Are you afraid of standing up for Jesus? Or is it a point of repentance or life change? You know that God has been speaking to you to give up certain things, to change a part of your life. And the cost is just too great in terms of your reputation or your comforts, and you're afraid. You're afraid of what you're going to miss out on if you give that up. Is that you? Is fear stopping you from obedience? Or is it maybe God is calling on your life and your future something pretty radical? And you're not taking it up because you're afraid. So that's the second fear. What about the third? The Pharisees show us that you can also reject Jesus' offer by control. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to go back to scene three, verse 13. So skip, uh, sorry, go back a few verses. Verse 13, let me read it. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. All right, another reason why Jesus deliberately used spit 
and mud is because spit is unclean, right, by their standards. Obviously, it's unclean by our standards too. But for them, it's a religious thing. It's a ceremonial thing. Making mud involves working, right? And then making this blind man go and wash the mud off his eyes, the healing. I mean, Jesus could have just said, be healed, and would have been healed. But Jesus was actually deliberately doing things that would have put him in the bad books of the religious leaders. Jesus was kind of picking a fight, all right, on the Sabbath, because he was breaking the Sabbath day. By the way, this is not Sabbath law according to God's law. You read the Old Testament, right, where these laws originally came from, and there's nothing that says you can't go and heal someone, even with mud, can't go and wash yourself in the pool. But it's what the traditions of the leaders of Jesus' day had added on to God's laws. And so here's the thing. The Sabbath was all intended to point to what? Rest. That's what the word Sabbath means. Rest. Recreation or recreation, if you like. New creation. That's what it's supposed to point to. There's actually nothing more Sabbath-like than healing, is there? Right? To heal on the Sabbath is actually to fulfill the Sabbath. But you see, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they would not accept that. See, for them, the logic is he broke the Sabbath and therefore he is a sinner. And if he's a sinner, then he has to be a fake. All right? Jesus didn't fit into their box. So let's skip ahead to scene five. Let's cover those verses so we can uh, see how it all ends up. Scene five, verse 24. The second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, the blind man replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. See the simplicity of his faith? I don't know. Just tell you what happened. Verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open his eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Oof, right? Then he hurled insults at him and said, You are his, this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of, of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now they're not very nice people, these Pharisees, are they? But don't get too judgy yet. Be very, very careful because we are more like them than we care to admit. See, the Pharisees represent religion. Religion, doesn't matter which religion, even the Christian religion, if you like. Religion is all about human systems to try to get to God. Right? Religions are about human systems to try to get to God. Religions, by definition, is works-based. It's how can we earn our way, merit our way, work our way back to God. Jesus has not ever and does not today come to bring religion. Get that in your heads. Right? Even what's often called the Christian religion today is very much not what Jesus has come to bring. Jesus is not about religion. Jesus is not about us getting to God. It's about God coming to us. It's not works. It's grace. Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. Not a religion based on works, but a relationship based on God's grace. 
Now, because religion is a human-centered system, it loves to keep God in a box, yeah? Religion loves to draw boundaries on what God should do, what He shouldn't do, what He should be like, what He shouldn't be like, what He can do and what He can't do, because it needs to fit into our own system. And anytime God threatens to break out of that, religion can't hack it, can't handle it. And the religious, and particularly religious leaders, will try to bring it under control. That's what religion does. In history, we've seen this happen again and again. Heard of the Salvation Army? Yeah? William Booth, the man who founded the Salvation Army, wanted to take the gospel to the poorest people of London. He had opposition from established churches. William Carey wanted to take the gospel to India. James Hudson Taylor wanted to take the gospel to China in the 19th century. Guess who tried to talk them out of it? Church ministers. In the 1700s, when revival broke out in America under Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening, thousands were getting converted, often with uncontrollable weeping, tears of repentance. Christians were renewed, fired up in their walk with God. They got all passionate and enthusiastic. They couldn't stop talking about Jesus. Well, guess what happened? They were accused of emotionalism. The religious once again tried to shut it down. How many of you know that when Jesus touches a person's life in a real way, it often appears to the outsider to be very messy and maybe a little crazy? But what's really happening is that Jesus is healing a broken person. In order to heal and remake broken people into his beautiful image, Jesus has to first completely break us down, mess us up. I don't know if you've seen websites dedicated to Ikea fails. I hate building Ikea. I can see me doing one of these. This is an Ikea fail. I don't even know what it's supposed to be. Or this. What, is, what in the world is this? Or oh, my favorite is this one. Now, if you've ever tried to fix an Ikea fail, and I think um, Pastor Marshall had not an Ikea fail, but a building fail recently, you know you can't just fix it, right, by moving. You actually have to take it apart again, pretty much. You have to break it down in order to rebuild it. And that's what Jesus does with our lives. Some of you here are missing out on Jesus breaking through in your life because you are afraid of what I'll call the beautiful mess that it often creates. Just afraid of that. I don't want, yeah, I want Jesus, but I want Jesus containable. I don't want Jesus to mess with me to make me emotional. Or maybe you see other people, individuals, churches, who are ignited by a passionate, uncontrollable love for Jesus and it just makes you so uncomfortable. You're unsettled by it. You either explain it away, oh, oh, that's just because they're the emotional, charismatic type people or churches. Or you actually maybe go and condemn it. Well, that's definitely not from God because God needs to be orderly in everything. Well, God is orderly, but not orderly in the way you and I think of orderly. And so, you keep your distance. And then in your own life, Jesus remains in your intellect, but you lock him out of your heart. You lock him out of your affections. You lock him out of your emotions. Because God forbid he should come and mess you up. And here's the thing, because you do this, you are missing out on the really beautiful but messy healing work of Jesus in your life. 
And how I know this is because for years this was me. Jesus is God. You know that, right? He will always break out of the boxes that we create for him. Right? Jesus, in John chapter 2, came and he says, you destroy this temple, the center of the Jewish religion, and I will rebuild it in three days. And he was talking about his body. But because he said things like that, the Jews wanted to kill him. See, the only way to receive all that Jesus wants to do in your life is not to try to control, squeeze him into your box, but to surrender. That's the only way. So let's go back to the blind man and his childlike faith. Let's go right to the end of the passage. This is how you receive. Three ways to reject, one way to receive. We're going to close out the story, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who, will see, who see will become blind. Right? This is where it ends up. It's, you know, it's dripping with irony, if you know what irony means. It's the reversal, isn't it, here? The blind see, but the seeing remain blind. And so you see, this blind man is the opposite of Jesus' disciples. He's the opposite of his own parents. He's the opposite of the Pharisees. He, in his childlike faith, he comes to Jesus not by works, but through grace. He comes empty-handed. He had nothing. He leaves from a worldly sense, with nothing. He gets chucked out of the synagogue. But then he has everything, doesn't he? he not like his parents. He, he's not afraid. He trusts. Right? He's thrown out of the synagogue, no longer welcomed in the Jewish religion. But he would rather have Jesus. And instead of control, he surrenders. Verse 38, when he says, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped. The word down for worship is, is, a, is a physical term for worship. There's a few different words for worship. This one is the one where actually you fall down on your knees and you, right? Kowtow, the Chinese way, right? That's the word there. Falls down in worship. You see, friends, it's not that complicated. It really is very simple. Simple. Today, if Jesus is speaking to you and encountering you, can I say, don't resist him. Don't complicate it with all your buts and ifs and whens and what, da, 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 explanations, excuses. Just let go and let him. Let go of your works. Let go of fear. Let go of control. Let Jesus in. He wants to come deep, deep, really deep in, in order to heal you. And he will, if you let him, begin to mend everything that's broken to you and give you joy and peace and freedom beyond anything you can imagine. You can do that today. So will you? Let's pray. Let's get the band up. Get ready to sing as well.